I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how I wanted to do it, but there was some level of naivety around it as well. And to be honest, I don't regret that because I think that maybe made me a little bit bolder than I should have been. And so, you know, when you're a little bit naive and maybe a little bit too optimistic, you don't really think about the downsides or the booby traps along the way, right? And you start thinking about what you could do. Hi, I'm Margie Ong, the CEO of Thoughts in Gear, and you're listening to Gut Talks, double G-U-double-T. Hi everyone, Maria here, and welcome to Season 2 of Gut Talks, double G-U-double-T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria designer, strategist, and venture builder running GUT, WGUWT, a design and innovation hub. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me. Maria at God.com, W-G-U-W-T, or check the links in the show notes. If you haven't noticed, there are no sponsors for the show, but you can still support God Talks, and it's super easy. Just leave a five-star review and a comment, and follow our social media channels on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, and the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get started. Margie Ong is the CEO of Thoughts in Gear and is based out of Kuala Lumpur. She works with corporations to incorporate sustainability and ESG principles into core businesses and with nonprofits for strategic and systemic impact. She's a public speaker, member of the RFI, Responsible Finance Foundation. We had an interview with the CEO, Play Good, and with another member, Jessica Robinson. And here we are with Margie. And she's also a member of Donut Economics. This is a super short intro, Marty. I'm really, really excited to have you on God Talks. It's amazing to be here, Maria. Thanks so much for reaching out. I'm doing really well. It's a lovely sunny day in KL, and I hope you're well too. Thank you for that. I'm in Cyprus at the moment, supposedly on holidays, but I never take full holidays. So yeah, really happy to be doing this this morning. Yeah, who's Margie? Let's get started. Who's Margie? Oh my goodness. Um... Margie is a mom of two amazing teenagers who are currently, yeah, all grown up. So I have an 18-year-old daughter studying out in the U.S. and a 16-year-old boy who's here doing his A-levels in Malaysia. I'm also, at the moment, an entrepreneur. So I um, started up Thoughts and Gear about eight years ago. And it's been an amazing ride, as you said, you know, in sustainability and social impact. And just this morning with the team, we were just reflecting on how we consider ourselves really, really privileged that we're able to do what we do as a job. And uh, so it's been an amazing journey. So I'm a mom, I'm an entrepreneur, and oftentimes trying very hard to be a good daughter. (laughs) Not succeeding very well there. And you're also a mom of two dogs as well, right? 
Oh, yes, the two dogs. Absolutely. So we just moved. And fortunately, the apartment we moved into is pet friendly. And so we have the two dogs and they've transitioned from being outdoor dogs to very, very happily being indoor dogs now. And so it's a bit of a different living arrangement and we're really enjoying it, just having them around all the time, which is a little bit different, but lots of cuddles. <laughs> Going back a little bit to what you do, what made you do what you do, working and focusing on sustainability? Was that like a gut feeling moment? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And it is. You know how Steve Jobs often says that dots kind of connect in retrospect. Right. So it's really true. And it's funny because you don't realize that oftentimes a lot of what you do and everything you do brings you to where you are at that moment in life. And so when you look back, obviously, you know, it's obviously much clearer when you look back, but hindsight is 2020. Right. So I started out my career as an engineer with Intel. And oftentimes at that time, when I look back now, I do realize that even back then, I was oftentimes looking for purpose within what I was doing without realizing, not knowing you know, the term purpose or even, I just kept asking why I was doing what I was doing. And at that time, a friend happened to say, well, you know, you're building microchips that go into life-saving devices. And so, you know, I was happy for a little while. And from there, it just kind of carried on through every career change that I had. So I was working in management consulting with BCG, which I thought was really quite impactful. And then worked for a little bit in the US, had my two babies. And when I came back, I had explored a few different areas, including the working back with BCG with public sector and working for a large foundation. foundation in Malaysia. So coming back to your question of why I decided to do what I did, it was a moment when I decided, you know, this was about eight and a half years ago. So there was not much talk about sustainability in the market. But I kept thinking with some of the background that I happen to have, so with consulting and business strategy. So I decided to do what I'm doing when I decided I wanted a little bit of a career change. I wanted to come out and be an entrepreneur in an area that I could very much try and do what's best for the client within my prerogative, within what could possibly be conceived much more possibly creatively and innovatively within a smaller setup. And so as I was looking around and uh, the team and I were looking around and deciding what area to focus on, sustainability seemed like a truly transformative business strategy for companies in the sense that it was all-encompassing. It wasn't one area of the business. It wasn't about innovation in just one particular business process, for example. It was very far-reaching. And it also checked off the impact box that was very, very important to me at that time. And by chance, uh, we happened to start off with a good contract with the local stock exchange. And so through a very good friend, we were part of his larger contract. And I think that smoothed the transition and helped me get started doing what I do. And from there, I think it's just been really a series of very, very lucky events in terms of being able to go from client to client, being able to help large banks adopt sustainability, being able to work with the regulators in terms of really carrying the message of sustainability to the wider capital market, and being able to accelerate groups of companies towards sustainability in a much more structured manner as well through our product. 
Okay, I think I have a thousand questions <laughs> on, on, on that. So. I love her. <laughs> okay, let, let me start with the most blunt one. So you said you work with banks and so on. And also, like even on your website, you can help companies measure the impact they make. Now, I just want a yes or no question, though, because it's a tough one in the sense that, you know, banks or many banks invest in fossil fuels and so on directly or indirectly as with a simple google search we can see that most or all of the large banks do that but talk about sustainability and with this and that would they stop investing in fossil fuels after going through this awareness and mindset change with you no not immediately and i don't think we ever advocate yeah. that they do immediately because to some extent and and this is the way we work with a lot of our companies as well there is a reason for that company's existence and hopefully they know it and they embrace it and there is a need in the marketplace or in society for that company to exist oftentimes not always but oftentimes and in those cases we would very much like that company to continue to grow and thrive but in a much more sustainable manner than maybe they were before both in terms of doing less or no harm but also if possible being able to in fact regenerate for the planet right so and to your question on fossil fuels i think it will take its course over time absolutely but that's not as we all know going to happen tomorrow or next yeah. year but as long as we see continuous and progress and accelerated progress so not progress that will take us a century to get there but then as long as we see continuous and accelerated progress towards that goal I think we're on the right track. Okay, so it's it's something maybe for the long-term vision and there's a, lots of work to be done from the inside and not within only the organization, but shareholders or, you know, decision makers as well to get to that. So you can facilitate this transition, right? I know it's a tough one. It's not going to be overnight, obviously, but... Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great question because if you think about it in the wider context beyond banks, right? So if you think about every single company, if you think about... Mm -hmm the entire you know, supply chain, right? If you start at one company and you go upstream and downstream, you could start mapping this very, very colorful, interesting map of a supply chain. And if you start mapping the, the GHG emissions or the carbon footprint of the entire supply chain, you start realizing that carbon is very, it's currently very ingrained. It's very built into every single supply chain that we see out there. Mm -hmm. And then we need to step back and think, how do we, for the sake of the companies themselves in the future, as well as the rest of the planet, how do we now begin to start decarbonizing this supply chain? Right. And it's not, as we said, going to happen overnight, but there are also mitigating factors in the short term that they could do, but very much in building that into their businesses, whether it's net zero or beyond in the future. I'm going to get back into this because I have maybe 2000 questions now, not just a thousand. So my other question for you is when you started working on that, you said you had the stock exchange initially through a contact that helps obviously to get started and as you said eight years ago that was not a buzzword as it is today especially after or during the pandemic it became more of a buzzword how challenging was it to get started and you know convince corporations who are mainly money-making machines on rethinking their existence their purpose and then making changes 
So I think there are two parts of the answer to that. I think the first is that when I came out to be an entrepreneur, to be honest, I wasn't extremely familiar with that term. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how I wanted to do it. But there was some level of naivety around it as well. And to be honest, I don't regret that because I think that maybe made me a little bit bolder than I should have been. And so, you know, when you're a little bit naive and maybe a little bit too optimistic, you don't really think about the downsides or the booby traps along the way, right? And you start thinking about what you could do. And I think that helped me a lot of times because I I was constantly looking for opportunities in the market, uh, whether it be in a companies who are more vocal in terms of what they stand for, companies who have it more built into their DNA. For example, we worked with a large, you know, what Malaysia's largest standalone Islamic bank, for example. So it really is, you look out for, you know, when you're starting, and this is one of the things I was telling the team as well, that when we start, you know, there will be a range of companies with a range of leaders and a range of mindsets, right? But when we started out, we didn't look at the very beginning into converting anyone. So we said, you know, because we're small, we're lean, we're tiny, let's look within the converted, you know, that market space is huge, you know, and there are some industries that naturally also lend themselves to sustainability as well. And so that's kind of how we started. And I think we kind of at the very beginning, and we still are, to be honest, we are writing, you know, project by project and building upon it and building these amazing long-term relationships. So oftentimes our relationships would span anywhere between three to four years in terms of an engagement. And so it became very ingrained within us, even now, to look out for opportunities where we think or we believe that we can make a difference, where we can add value, and then really try and craft that into a proposition where both our clients and us sort of gain from that. But the other thing I think that was really, really helpful, I have traditionally never been a big fan of regulation. However, when we came out and by, you know, by chance, Bursa Malaysia, Malaysia Stock Exchange was in fact the first in Southeast Asia to come up with sustainability regulations. And that happened maybe about less than a year into into when we came to existence. And so that started obviously in implementation or you know, it didn't take effect immediately, but it did over the next few years. But that started the conversation in the market, right? So there was this adoption of the FTSE for Good evaluation framework. There were sustainability requirements built into the listing requirements. And so it began gaining some regulatory ground as well at that time. There were folks coming to us and you can imagine that, you know, they would say things like, what is the minimum we need to do to be in compliance, right? And there still is. There's a huge market out there which is driven to sustainability from a pure compliance perspective. And to be honest, that's absolutely fine. And I tell my team, I said, you know, whatever brings them to the table where we're having an engaging conversation and we have the opportunity to change mindsets, that's absolutely fine. Whatever has brought them to the table is one thing. Where we take them from here onwards 
is now within our responsibility. So oftentimes they would come and, and we would work on that basis. We work on this is the minimum. So we have like, for example, a 40 point checklist, you know, that companies have to go through in order to be compliant, etc. So we do often engage whoever comes to us from wherever they are. And I think that's really important, meeting them where they are and not necessarily trying to evangelize some of our larger beliefs or trying to be too altruistic. And at the same time, understanding, especially through this pandemic, and we now run workshops for the stock exchange as well. And so we're accelerating 100 companies at the moment towards sustainability. So almost every other week, we have workshops about 10 companies and they share. There is amazing sharing. And that's my favorite part. And sometimes it's just, to be honest, by luck of industry and through no fault or effort of their own, oftentimes this pandemic has been relatively harsh on certain industries and maybe very, very good for others, right? So they come from different places where their companies are at. And so one of the things that we try and stress very much is that their sustainability journey is unique to them. Their adoption is whatever at that point in time is within their willingness, but also their capacity to be able to adopt. Ad break. No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors, but you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player and like, share, and follow the social media channels of Gut, W-G-U-T-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. I like how you approach that and how you framed it. I think it's super clear. I have a few takeaways from what you've just been saying. Like when you got started, you said you didn't kind of know what to expect. Sometimes it's a good thing. Or actually, it's always a good thing because if you knew what to expect, you would have never done it, I guess. <laughs> and I speak with entrepreneurs and, you know, in startup programs and stuff. You don't know what to expect. This is why you end up doing it, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. that was driving yeah, you, you stumble along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And another thing is... You said you had all these regulations and so on. And this, it's actually across each field. I mean, even if you talk about customer experience, which is something I'm also familiar with, it's lots of regulations that can make the process not smooth when it can be smooth and, you know, create frustration to the consumers. If you think of telcos and whatever, this happens all the time just because of regulation. So I I think in sustainability as well, it's as big. But in that instance, because Malaysia adopted or created some regulations and so on, constraints helped just to put some, I think, direction, I guess, into your work. You worked around it, but it's also pushed companies, right? wanting to do that how do you get started let's say there's a corporation and they are somewhere let's imagine we have from zero to five a scale zero to five and they're at 2.5 or two whatever how do you get started because from my understanding you have customized consulting or for each company Correct. And you work with them for like three to four years. How does this work? I just want to put stuff into perspective for the audience. No, that's a great question. And you know, you kind of reached with that zero to five scale, Maria, but you might have actually hit upon something because there is this general concept of sustainability and it's called the sustainability wave. 
And it actually places companies in five very clear stages of adoption. And so maybe they pick that up from you. And oftentimes these five stages actually help a company be able to, it's high level, and I'll tell you exactly what it is in a minute, but it's high level, but it helps a company not just identify where they're at at the moment, but it helps them guide them in terms of where they can be. So the five stages, very easily, it is the first stage is when companies are pre-compliance. So these are companies that are not compliant, and to be honest, oftentimes maybe not motivated to be compliant. So these are kind of the outliers who are not keen on adopting sustainability, even for compliance reasons, right? So they're companies in stage one. Stage two are very much the compliance companies. So companies that are in compliance and want to remain in compliance and do that really, really well, but they have no desire to go above and beyond that. Stage three is beyond compliance. So very much companies are compliant and know that they want to do a little bit more than what is required. And sometimes that little bit more, to be very honest, and and you'd be very familiar with the fact that there are win-win situations, right? So an easy example, energy efficiency makes the CFO very happy, but those things are maybe slightly beyond compliance. So they could be doing beyond compliance, even in their own interest, but they go a little bit above and beyond um, compliance. Stage four is about when it begins to get integrated into strategies. So when sustainability and ESG considerations start becoming quite integral to the company in terms of strategically where they're going. And stage five, finally, is a stage that even global companies oftentimes struggle to achieve. And it is the stage where sustainability becomes the purpose and passion of the company. So, you know, companies that we know and quote all the time, like Patagonia, et cetera, where they have, where they were built on purpose and passion, and they have leaders and CEOs that are relatively visionary and really drive the company that way very profitably, mind you, towards that as a purpose and passion. So that's kind of the five that match really closely to your zero to five range as well. But to answer your question, so wherever they come from, wherever they're on on that sustainability wave, one of the things we ask them is, where do you want to get to? And how fast do you want to get there? So where that tells us a lot of things. That tells us their level of motivation and desire in terms of adopting sustainability. It also tells us the approach that they'll be taking, whether will they be aggressively and maybe oftentimes putting in some maybe long-term capital in terms of investments into their sustainability initiatives, or will they be doing the minimal necessary in order to remain compliant? And there, I think one of the things we try really, really hard to do, I think nobody can be a judge in this space because we cannot experience what that company is going through or just the level of exposure that leader has had in terms of the importance and criticality of sustainability and the fact that it's imperative to business. We don't know what their scanning looks like. The only thing we can do is help them build that, right? Help them build that sense of urgency and the need to in order to incorporate sustainability. But to answer your question of how we actually get them there, we have a very simple eight-step process that we adopt that we actually uh, summarize into four phases. And one of the things that we like to do is really more for our benefit than the client is really to simplify a lot of things. So making it really, really simple. So our four phases are know, plan, do, tell. 
So very simply, we tell a company that, you know, we advise them that if they, wherever you are, these four steps constantly or four phases constantly repeat themselves, right? So in the no phase, we oftentimes say, first and foremost, you know, if sustainability is new, not just to you, but to your entire organization, you need to have a level of understanding, maybe not the technicalities behind it necessarily, but the entire organization needs to know what sustainability is and why you're heading that way if you are. You also need to know what's going on in your company. So a baseline of all the existing sustainability initiatives. And one of the things that we do ask companies is, do you think you're running sustainability initiatives today? And surprisingly, a lot of companies say no. Then we ask them, you know, do you adopt lean manufacturing? Are you ISO compliant? And oftentimes those answers are yes. Do you have health and safety regulations? And we say you already are running sustainability. You are taking all the right steps and you have a lot of sustainability initiatives that you're not giving yourself credit for. So that's very much in the no, right? Then we get into planning where it's about strategy. It's about materiality assessments, knowing what's important to you, what are your material matters, and really strategizing around your stakeholders as well. Then we get to do, which is very much when we talk about implementation, we talk about, as you mentioned before, measurements, we talk about indicators, global standards, and this is where we try to bring in just a few frameworks from that alphabet soup that you're familiar with out there. We bring in a few frameworks like GRI, TCFD, you know, just a few of the important frameworks. And we try and break that down into minute steps, just steps that they could take. Like, for example, in the GRI reporting framework, there are two levels of compliance as in compliance core and in compliance comprehensive, right? So, but we always tell them, you know, before you get to the first level of in compliance, where you need to respond to this number of indicators, we've created a new, I, I probably shouldn't tell GRI this, but we've created a new bucket for our customers. And it's called not in compliance GRI. And what that bucket is, is we tell them, get started on the journey. Even if you cannot do the most minimum in compliance, even if you pick five indicators, do that, right? So do that, pick the five indicators and you're not in compliance, but that's absolutely fine because you're still guided by that global standard. You're still adopting the language. You're still using the terminology. And over time, it will build that familiarity with the framework. And so that's in the kind of in the do. And then finally, in the tell, which is, and we often say that's a phase that we leave to the very end because you tell the story of what you've done. Try not to start with the telling, although oftentimes we do go into projects where it's like, how do I report on sustainability? Yeah. Yeah. So the tell part at the very end is about their reporting and their storytelling about how far they've come and what they've done. So I guess the tell part includes the measure. or the measure would be after? The measure is typically in the do. So oftentimes we ask them, and in fact, we give them a cycle for their reporting where the reporting starts even before the financial year. So if you think about your fiscal reporting, right? You have 
three months before the start of the financial year. You prepare your projections for next year. You prepare your budget. You have huge cross-department meetings and business planning in order to be able to plan for the following year. We encourage them to mirror that process with their sustainability process. So plan what you're gonna do next year. Look at the indicators and the measurements. So if you know you're going to measure your waste, you know you're going to measure your level of emissions for next year. If you know, if you break that down into specifics and you plan that with the rest of the departments across your company, everyone will be able to take actions towards that direction and measure towards it throughout the year. So that's oftentimes in the do, but you're right. It's very, very important in the tell. And this is where a lot of companies are. If you do the best initiatives, but you're not reporting it in a way, unfortunately, that the market can understand. You're not going to get due credit as a company for it. And that's where, importantly, global standards are important. Protocols are important. It's important to know what to report and how to report it in order to be able to address your investors, your regulators, your customers, and also carry that through to storytelling, right? Which brings us to, I won't even start on greenwashing, but that brings us to a whole other concern. I've been trying not to talk about this right now, but this is coming up because you said the measure comes in the do, but the tell is equally important. And, And I guess all your process lasts three to four years, right? From my understanding of this um no that entire four phases we always say depending on how how much appetite or how aggressively a company can adopt it but all of that is meant to happen within 12 months okay so between one inability report to the next Okay. Okay. So, and here comes this into place. So you said sometimes they're like, you know, people or individuals in organizations are not always aware that they are somehow sustainable, right? In their processes and so on, but also more, more maybe into their activities. And I always give this example. And when I did the podcast, the episode with Ravi Shidambaram, I think it was one of the first episodes. And I asked this question because this is what happens. Like you have, you you know, for Christmas, for instance, we have Christmas jumpers initiatives where everyone buys his Christmas jumper from X nonprofit. And this is, you know, something to talk about or planting trees. This is like a new trend, right? It's been there for a while, but you sign up, you pay a dollar or whatever, and you plant a tree somewhere or you have a tree on your name you know, but how can the general public differentiate between communication, PR, CSR exercises and real impact? That's really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for the general consumer to know. And in fact, even an educated, a very well-educated consumer, it's really hard for them to tell for a number of reasons. The first reason is it really depends on the level of disclosure of that company. So if they make a claim in, and one of the things that we include in our workshop are examples of adverts that are misguided and uh, that have been banned by the advertising authorities. You know, for example, an airline claiming to be, you know, the lowest emission airline, et cetera, et cetera. They measure it based on one metric as opposed to the company as a whole. So it's little things like that that make it really hard for the consumer to tell. However, Having said that, I think first we're getting much more informed consumers. You know, I'm so, so energized by our young generation. Yeah. And 
I must say, they, and that includes you, of course, um, that, you know, you guys are going to be the difference. Once, um, you know, those of us who are much older and, uh, you know, we kind of hand over our baton to the younger generation, I have a lot of faith that things will move towards being highly sustainable because the younger generation seem to be very driven by this need to live within our planetary boundaries because it is a matter of survival, unfortunately, for the next few generations. And so I think the consumer is very much becoming much more educated. They're informing themselves. And alongside that, there are bodies that are helping inform them. So things like certification bodies, as long as they're not fake certification bodies, things like even labels on products, right? So labeling if you compare our nutrition label today to even five, 10 years ago, it has a lot more information today than it ever did before. Organizations like Fair Trade, et cetera, if carried out well, helps to inform the consumer. So these are agencies or organizations that can help me as a consumer trust that organization as opposed to trusting the company themselves to disclose information about themselves. I'm now trusting a third party or, or a different body to be able to audit and inspect them and tell me that they are trustworthy. So that helps. I think those bodies help. And then oftentimes as well, just very broad regulations, like for example, when CC was banned, um, you know, just broad regulations, I think definitely help in terms of moving this conversation along as well. But oftentimes as well, I tell the companies that they have to be very, very careful because greenwashing is not, and that's why it's so difficult for consumers to really find out because greenwashing within a company can either be intentional oftentimes, or sometimes it, they, it can actually be in, accidental as well. They might be touting or they might be marketing certain aspects, thinking that that is the right thing to do or that it's a metric that they want to shout about, not having a larger or wider awareness or realization that that is one part of maybe a larger picture. So I think even that confusion, even within the companies themselves, if they're still well-intentioned, they could still fall into the category of greenwashing. So also to be very, very careful. I'm glad we tapped into that. It's a tough one. And I totally agree with the younger generation, even millennials. I'm a millennial, but also Gen Z and, and so on. I mean, I've also attended many, if you want, hackathons or mentoring sessions for hackathons and, you know, ideathons and whatever with different accelerators with, you know, folks that are maybe 10 years younger than me and so on. And everyone was into, especially in the fashion industry and they all were into upcycling recycling and all of that it might be body sometimes but this is how they think first and this is great to make a difference because hopefully in the next few years we would be able to make some if you want or see or perceive some differences in the way companies think i just like to say companies think because they're made out of people who make decisions so it's a collective thinking but how have the attitudes, if you want, towards even sustainable investing changed? Like, did this change, I'm not going to say radically, but from your experience, how do you see this perception evolving? Um, sustainable investing specifically, it started out being relatively niche, 
right? So in fact, I started out being extremely niche in impact investing and then slowly taking on the sustainable investing and responsible investing lens as well. But it remained, I think, to a large extent, relatively niche for a few different reasons. I think one, the returns were not yet at that time well-proven in terms of being able to achieve both impact and returns at the same time. I think secondly, there was not enough standardization, and there still isn't, in terms of the ability to gauge the impact or the ESG performance of a certain company. So it was really hard to look at your portfolio of companies and determine which one was more impactful than the other. Or if a company that you're thinking of investing in, whether that company was impactful. It was hard because, and it still is, it's not relatively easy, but it has come a long ways in terms of being able to understand how E or how S or how G they are, right? So that, I think that that started off relatively niche. It has obviously gained a lot of steam. And, you know, when you see the world's biggest investment firms at the moment, really putting a stake in the ground and saying that, in fact, that's going to be their first line of defense in terms of screening for ESG, then you get very hopeful that it's very quickly coming into the mainstream. And I think it's coming mainstream partly because there's enough data out there to show that it actually can be done. So I think that evolution now into making it a lot more mainstream has actually, in fact, helped an even stronger motivation than regulation in terms of moving companies along. So in fact, I think in terms of the evolution of motivation for a company, it evolved from regulators and then obviously the investors are a big motivation. And then now very much in terms of the supply chain, there was a report recently that pointed out that 78% of multinational companies around the world by 2025 are going to begin cutting suppliers if they do not meet their carbon reduction. If they're they're impacting that company's own net zero goals, they will have to unfortunately begin cutting their suppliers that are impacting their own goals. So that's only three and a half years away. And they did list down, it's a very good report called Carbon Dated by Standard Chartered. It's, it listed down the countries that are most affected. And three Southeast Asian countries are in the top 10 of the list in terms of export revenue at risk. And so I think that's going to be now the next wave of motivation of why not just companies, but countries will begin paying attention Thank you for that. I'm going to be linking the report as well in the description. I just want to say here my issue, I mean, who am I? But I mean, my issue with the large or huge investment firms, they're also great at communication. But what do they invest in, actually? I think they do both. And they try to focus on the communication versus what they try to hide. But the data is there anyway. But one needs to go and do I guess, the research. But the good thing is they're creating awareness around it. And this is for smaller firms as well. I don't know, but that's... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, Maria, I think that's really fair. And in fact, I think we need to count on folks like yourselves to hold them accountable. So, you know, this is what you've said. This is what you've done. This is what the data shows, right? And I think oftentimes, yes, 
on, on the plus side, as you said, is creating awareness and it is inspiring the rest of the market to really get on this pathway. But at the same time, and this goes for investors, it goes for companies as well, that we as the general public, we need to constantly be holding them accountable. So hold their feet to the fire in terms of even if it's picking up. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, when you look at the data and sometimes it's intentionally overwhelming, right? And it's just too much for a consumer to pick up and say, okay, you know, before I buy my next beverage, before I buy my next laundry detergent, I'm going to study every single company to make sure I'm voting with my wallet. That's not realistic, obviously. But I think even if we pick up on one small metric, um, you know, as in your example, for example, you know, if we say BlackRock, you've made this commitment and you've made these statements. Yeah, I was thinking of BlackRock (laughs) and Vanguard. (laughs) And Vanguard. Now let's look at your portfolio, but let's not just look at it today, right? Because it's obviously, as we said earlier in the conversation, a process. Let's look at your portfolio maybe two years, five years ago, look at it now, and we'll keep looking at it as we go down the path to see which direction it goes into. And I think even if it's picking up on one company, even if it's picking up on one metric within one company and holding them accountable for it, I think that's extremely important and just making sure that you really walk the talk. As you said, oftentimes marketing and PR plays a very big role and a very important role as well. But then we want to make sure that there's substance behind that. Yeah, that's also absolutely marketing and PR. And I know one of, I think it was my first job and uh, we had this meeting and the owner and CEO of the company said, all right, so um, it was a kind of an industrial design company. But I remember we had this meeting and he said, if we have a cigarette company come to us and we need to do something for them, but we don't believe people should smoke and whatever, whatever, right? And he asked us the question and it was like, should we take the project or not? You know, and it it goes back to all these marketing and advertising firms who would work with these big uh, conglomerates, I'm going to call them investment firms and so on, uh, the huge ones. And again, it's a matter of choice, right? You choose to provide the service. Now you can go two ways, be very selective, but, you know, it can can drag you or take you backwards or just do it and just do it. And, And that's very tough even for companies. And we go back to the supply chain you're talking about because touches all aspects i guess i have two yeah. more questions uh, quick ones i don't know if you want to say something you think here uh, before uh, i ask yeah, you. yeah no i think that's a really good example in terms of whether you would work with a tobacco firm and to be honest this is where oftentimes uh, you know in our workshop we have folks from many different levels right we have working group we have people writing sustainable reports we have board of directors joining us in the workshop and oftentimes i come back to the ceo And I think that leadership and the decisions that the CEO makes in those situations is so key in defining the culture that surrounds an entire organization. And that leadership is what we're looking for when they go down the sustainability path. Like, I don't know if you read in the papers just yesterday, for example, the CEO of Salesforce had come out and said that, so then we would have heard the news that Texas has taken some steps as a state that are not very favorable to a woman's body. And the Salesforce CEO has come out and said that 
the company will help anybody who would like to relocate out of Texas. And that takes guts. That takes, oh, back to gut talks. So that takes a lot of guts. That takes a lot of courage to be able to stand up and not just, you know, in your little platform in your company, but at, on the world stage to make a stand. And I'm really in awe and inspired by people who have that courage to make that stand and, and really face the consequences afterwards. Yeah, but given that he's Salesforce still, I mean, the CEO is the CEO of Salesforce. But again, you wouldn't hear this from other bigger companies than Salesforce as well, right? Because again, it depends. There was an article not a long time ago, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, I think I can't remember. In the UK, I hiring software developers massively, which is not helping startups that already raised money, you know, even Series A, to afford to hire software developers. And we here we have the question, are they going to go abroad outside the UK and hire talent? Or will they still find talent in the UK who, you know, stand their ground because they have their purpose and they don't want to work for these big companies? But what's been happening in Silicon Valley, giving these huge salaries are now, I mean, it's not the way it was. You would just go for the salary. Again, that going back to the younger generation, it's not only about money. So let's see. I mean, interesting times, I must say, yes. in that yes. space. But again, Salesforce, yeah, and LinkedIn, uh, Reed Hoffman, they make interesting statements, but because they're big as well. So yeah, no, that's, it's more... true. that's true. They are big. And I think, and, and it's because they're big that we hear of them, but uh, hopefully that trickles down and, and it does need to be reflected in, I think, you know, and one of the reasons I quote Salesforce is because it, it does need to be reflected in a lot of other decisions, yeah. right? It's yeah. not just that one statement that you hold them to, but really about the culture of the company and the decisions they make along the way. But as you said, let's see. <laughs> yeah. And I have many questions, but I'm aware of time. So let's, um, I have two quick ones, really. On a scale like one to 10, you know, I'm not a fan of scales. I don't know why today I'm just <laughs> the scales, but anyway. We're in measurement mode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you think you kind of cracked or at least went a long way through cracking the code of impact or purpose plus profit? I think we are at a two out of 10. I think we are nowhere near cracking that nut. I think we're just playing very much on the surface. I think we're all discovering along the way. And one of the things I love to tell my clients is that we are all learning together. And oftentimes I tell them, you know, if you're in a stage where you don't know very much at the moment in terms of where to go, how to go, or what to do, you know, you're relatively fortunate in that you have a peer group of folks that are learning with you. But if you don't take action now, even in a year's time, they will be way ahead of you in terms of that learning curve. So oftentimes, um, you know, I try and encourage them to say that. Now, the reason I say we're at it too is because every single time I have a session and I hear from these amazing companies from a variety of different industries, right? I realize how much I know what I don't know. And, uh, you know, you realize how much is out there in terms of, I'll, I'll give you, you know, two very quick examples. So one example is a company who builds roads, for example. So they used to tear up every time they want to build a new road, they used to tear up about five centimeters of road 
cart away that waste and place the new road on top of it. They've since developed a vehicle that goes in front of the tarring vehicle that pulls up five centimeters of road, mixes that into the new tar and uses that as the new material going forwards. Now, not only do they not need to cart away the waste, they also now are reusing that material and saving costs on some of the raw materials as well. But that's just an example of business process improvement. We're very into business process improvement because I think that's really where the rubber hits the road, excuse the pun, but you know, based on our example, but it really is where the rubber hits the road because oftentimes that's where the uh, action takes place. You know, another company has shared that they are now using the waste from their palm oil plantation, the fruit bunches, into making non-pulp paper, paper that's not sourced from trees. And so it's um, it's really interesting. And, you know, every time I hear a story like that, I realize that every industry is unique, every company is unique, every opportunity is unique. And really our job or our value is really to help them discover what they are experts in. And so, yeah, I think we're nowhere near cracking that nut. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, it's a tough space. And I, uh, I admire the fact that you're not going to say we're on a scale eight or seven or whatever, because I liked what you said. It's a constant. Uh, so, and it's going to be unique for each company. Um, and what's challenging for you today? Today, what's challenging for me? What's challenging for me is access. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, like, if I had at the moment, if I had one single microphone that you could speak into and the world's capital markets could hear you, you know, I wouldn't be necessarily speaking into it myself, but I would definitely love to speak to them, but also bring the experts in the world, the ones that are most inspirational, not just at the climate change level or not just at the evangelical level, but very much talking to every single company in terms of the value that they can uncover in sustainability. And I think not enough people are hearing that message, a very practical message. I'm very fond, as I've said, of the younger generation and the activism that's out in the market. But I think sometimes the companies feel quite detached from that and they don't feel like they relate, even though they have an almost direct impact on those people who are out there and asking them to save the planet. They don't see that connection. And I think there needs to be access to the companies to bring a very practical message to them to say, you know, you can have the right impact and still be profitable and still please your shareholders and be able to make a difference in the world and go to sleep at night. Um, and so it's, I think it's, it's the ability to get that access to every single ear or every single mind and I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Well, I'm going to keep this as a shout out, as a wrap up. <laughs> I like the way uh, you put this together. Yeah, last thing, how to find you, where to find you. I'm going to be putting all the links. But Oh, thank you. I'm on LinkedIn as Margie Ong. And our company website is www.thoughtsingear.com. Cool. Thank you so much, Margie, for this. Thank you, Maria. It's been lovely talking to you. 
You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloop. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.